this time of year, uh, a lot of people want to give back. They want to do some good in the world. But it can be overwhelming to choose where to donate. Uh, There's thousands of options. And GiveWell is a resource for donors like you. GiveWell does in-depth research to identify a very short list of exceptional charities that help you do the most good with your donation. All the details of this research are available for free online if you want to take a deep dive. Or just visit www.givewell.org to make your charitable donation go further. This paper is really fucking long. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. Uh, Joining me today is Ezra Klein. Sarah is still in the magical land of New Zealand. Uh, So we are here. uh, We're going to talk about the closing of the frontier and rugged individualism. Yes. We're going to talk about... Are you a rugged individualist, would you say? I'm not. I am neither rugged nor an individualist. (laughs) I'm like a a soft collectivist. (laughs) Fair enough. Um, But... We also want to talk about what's new in the tax bill, and we want to talk sort of more broadly about, you know, how to think about some of the the fiscal issues that that are are posed by I'm, the. I'm not going with your your elite language. We want to talk about debt and deficits. Debt and deficits. Do, de- do deficits matter? Always, so much. Or maybe never. We got to fix it. Maybe not in America. Um, but so okay, so the tax bill. It's on track to pass. I think it's going to pass the House, like probably as we're recording, and then the Senate the next day. Uh, but it's it's locked and loaded. They they have the votes. They don't even need John McCain's vote. Um, it's good to go. We should know John McCain who's at home sick. Yes. And um, why don't they need John McCain's vote, Matt? Because John Cornyn, who earlier objected to the bill for increasing Bob Corker, Bob, sorry, because Bob Corker, who earlier objected to the bill, do for they all look increasing the same to you? The deficit too much. They do. Um, he changed his mind, even though the new bill is different in quite a few ways, but it does not increase the deficit by less. I, I want to put a it pin in It probably increases it by more. I want to put a pin in Corker yes. because I want to come back to this. But So they went through conference committee, which is where the House and the Senate meet and work out their issues with the bill. This conference committee was not merely uh, aimed at reconciling two versions of the bill, but new things that did not exist in the previous bill entered into the bill. So how did they change the legislation in conference committee? Well, there's a... A bunch of different things. I I would say the most salient thing that they did was that in both the House and the Senate legislation, the corporate tax rate dropped to 20%. Uh, In the conference report, they bump it up to 21%. And the main reason for that is that they wanted to put in a tax cut for uh, the highest bracket earners, people who are making over $500,000 a year. In the old versions of the legislation, very rich people got their taxes cut if they owned uh, pass-through businesses or if they owned shares of stock in publicly traded companies or if they or if they were going to inherit yep. vast multi-million dollar fortunes. Uh, but if you happen to be— But there were some rich people possibly left behind. <laughs> there was actually a hilarious thing in the House report on it was that it like specifically called out Stephen Curry as an example of a rich person who would not be receiving a tax cut under this bill. I wonder why they chose Stephen Curry. Yeah, it's, it's baffling. Um, <laughs> at any rate, so it was previously structured so that African-American entertainment would not get a tax cut, but other kinds of rich people would. Uh, but they 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 did Steph a favor, and they, they cut his taxes a little bit. So um, I want to hold on this for a minute, because when I was talking to a bunch of Republican and Republican economists about this bill, one thing a lot of them said to me, actually, is that liberals should be happier than they are about this bill, because what's going on in it sort of 
before the conference committee, these conversations are happening about three weeks ago, is that Republicans have admitted that Democrats are right and bringing down the top marginal tax rate is just so unbelievably unpopular that like that argument is over. Like even Republicans are not going to try anymore to bring down the top marginal tax rate. They'll do all this weird stuff with pass-throughs and corporations and estate taxes, but they're not going to touch that top marginal tax rate. The left has won that argument. You know, the top marginal tax rate is going to be high. Maybe it'll even go higher. Uh, and and that seemed actually like a like a persuasive point to me, given that neither the House nor the Senate bills did touch that top marginal tax rate. And then they went behind closed doors and conference committee. And at the last minute, after deciding they could not raise the corporate rate in order to do Marco Rubio's provision where they would give a, a bigger child tax credit for, for the working poor, they're like, actually, we can increase the corporate rate to make sure that there are no rich people in this country who will not get an extremely large tax cut out of this bill. Right. I mean, there was a concern that there was like some millionaires left behind and they they have they have taken care of that objection. Uh, another big change that they made that there had been a lot of discussion about was the treatment of the state and local tax exemption, right? So initially in the House bill, they had scrapped this entirely. You just want to say what this exemption is. Sure. Like, people talk about it a lot, but I'm not sure Okay, everybody. so if you pay state and local taxes, which most people do, and you itemize your taxes, which most people don't, you are allowed to deduct the amount that you pay in state and local taxes from your federal income tax bill. Uh, so this right, is so a- I pay $100 in taxes to the D.C. local government. Like That's not the real number, obviously, right. but, but just for the hypothetical. And that means that I can deduct $100 off of the total income I'm paying taxes on to the federal government. Right. Yes. So the House bill completely scrapped this. Uh, the Senate bill was going to allow you to deduct property taxes, but cap the deduction at $10,000 and not let you deduct income taxes. Um, So that was like a a micro-targeted bill to screw over California. Uh, Because California, because of a mix of being very liberal politically now, but having the old ballot proposition limiting property taxes has like way higher income taxes than any other state. So then when it went to conference committee, um, the House California Republicans got them to make it a $10,000 cap that you could apply flexibly to either income taxes or property taxes, depending on how you want. So at the end of the day, this had been talked about a lot. It's very... um, interesting to tax nerds. People kind of love the political irony of Democrats defending a tax break for rich people because it impacts blue states. Uh, In the end, I mean, the $10,000 cap, it it means something. Uh, This will raise my taxes, for example, this provision. But it's a pretty small change in in the grand scheme of things. Um, The vast majority of people are not going to be hit by this provision. And I would say that that is the general trend of this bill, that what started, particularly in the House, as a, as a process that it had a lot of reform. There was like a really strong left hook of reform in the bill that Kevin Brady and, and, and Paul Reform Reiner, here meaning doing a lot of base broadening, closing cl- deductions, closing, of a lot closing of loopholes. Yeah. You're going to have this simpler tax code. It will fit on a postcard. Exactly. People aren't going to be dodging their taxes anymore. And, and while Ryan and McCarthy, uh, Ryan and Brady did not write a revenue neutral tax reform, and they didn't write a distributionally neutral tax reform. It was tax reform. It was kind of like, I would say it was like a left hook of tax reform and then like an uppercut of tax breaks for rich people. I have no idea what would be meant if you had chosen different punches there. 
Like, well, what if it had just been a jab of tax cuts <laughs> well, for rich it, people? It was that at the at the end of the day, it was a big tax cut for rich. people. I think people. it was a jab of tax reform followed by an uppercut of cut of well, tax cuts way, for rich people. Um, but now it's not even a jab of tax reform, right? What they sort of did that thing where you grapple for a second with they, tax reform they, and they, then you break. They watered it down enormously, <laughs> and there is just there's way less reform, and to fit in the 1.5 trillion dollar deficit window, they're relying pretty overwhelmingly on gimmicks rather than on pay-fors. Now, there are some So, a gimmick changed in this. Yes. Can we talk about that? Because I think this gimmick thing is worth a minute. Well, okay. What what, what do you have in mind specifically? Because there's a lot of gimmicks. (laughs) There's a lot of gimmick change. But one of the things they did was they moved up the expiration date of a bunch of the non-corporate provisions. Right. Um, what did they move it from? And so to? it was th- mostly vaguely... things that used to expire in 2027, like all the way at the end of the window, yep. now expire in 2025. So like midway through the window. Okay, but so still... I just want to talk about what's happening yeah. there. So I, uh, the Tax Policy Center came out with an estimate of this bill now. And the bill's impact on inequality at the end of the 10-year window has now gotten worse. So 83% of the bill's benefits go to the top 1% in 2027. Um, Amazingly, more than 100% of the bill's benefits in 2027 go to the top quintile. That's because it's a tax increase on a lot of people who are under the top quintile. Uh, If I'm remembering this correctly, I think something like 50-ish, 53% of the benefits go to the top 0.1%. So John Carney, who is at Breitbart now, I think, Um, tweeted back he's, and he said to me, he's like, you know, estimating a bill based on provisions that people think are going to be extended is a dumb way to look at a bill. And, and that's like the Republican argument here, that you have this bill and they've set all these provisions to expire, but the provisions won't really expire. And so like the way you should understand the bill is like not as it is written down, but with this kind of like conceptual like gimme that it will be different. Like the future Congress is going to make decisions to extend all this stuff, which may well be true. But so then you ask the question, well, why did they write the bill this way? And the reason they wrote the bill this way is that if they had not, the bill would be ineligible to go through reconciliation even under the rules they have framed. Right. It would cost more than $1.5 trillion, uh, on the debt in the first 10 years, and it would blow up the debt um, in the years after that, which would make it ineligible for the Bird Rule. So, What you have here is a bill that is written, if you listen to what people are saying, to just break the rules. It's going to be much worse for debt and deficits than they're admitting. It is going to be much worse in the long run for debt and deficits than they're admitting. And they sort of want to have it both ways. Um, They both want to say... Uh, this bill, you know, should go through reconciliation. It uh, it accords to our rule. They're only going to add 1.5 trillion to debt in the first 10 years, which, by the way, is a number they pulled out of thin air. Right. Right. They just chose 1.5 trillion. They could have chosen anything. Um, so they chose 1.5 trillion. They couldn't even stand within their own fucking limit. And it's not a small limit. 1.5 trillion is a lot of money to give yourself to play with. They couldn't even say within their own limit. So they added this gimmick. This gimmick, among other things, reduces whatever economic growth you might think the bill would do because it means that, uh, pass-through companies and individuals and everybody else can't plan because they don't actually know what the tax code is going to be like in 10 years. And then to like top it all off while they're saying that the bill should still be seen as something that's going to only add, you know, whatever it is, roughly a trillion and, you know, through magic math, nothing to the deficit. Um, it should also be understood as a bill that will have all these deficit extending deficit blowing up provisions extended into the far reaches of eternity. It is such 
like unbelievable dishonesty in all directions. Like such an amazing game, uh, uh, such an amazing shell game here that I'm just like, I'm sort of just shocked at the brazenness of it. To be fair, Bush, George W. Bush did a version of this, but it's bad. I, I, I just, I also <laughs> think, I, I think it's important to, to draw a distinction here because there's been furious sort of disagreement among journalists about this point. I mean, you, you named John John Carney, who's uh, works at at Breitbart and is a a bit of a, a bit of a maniac. Uh, but but jo- Josh Barrow at, at Business Insider, uh, who you know I, I like a lot, was taking this view uh, a few weeks ago. Jonathan Weissman, who's I think the deputy editor in the New York Times' Washington bureau, was also taking Carney's view point on this. So it's influencing very mainstream coverage. And I just, I think it's important to be clear about what kinds of exercises there are. If you ask me, you know, if you you send me an email, you're like, Matt, is the middle class going to be paying higher taxes in 2027 than they are paying today? I would say to you, I am really not sure and if they are paying higher taxes, the reason that they are paying higher taxes is probably because a Democratic Party landslide somewhere in the middle caused them to put a Medicare for all plan in. That, like, it is true that it is not likely that what is going to happen is that this bill will be fully implemented as written. That said, it's simply hard to forecast what's going to be happening in 2027, yep. right? Ten years ago was 2007, right? So if you were gaming out in 2007, if you knew that Barack Obama was going to win in a landslide in 2008, uh, but then that Republicans would come roaring back, take the House in 2010, and then that Donald Trump was going to be elected president—I mean, congratulations to you if you correctly forecast the past 10 years of political events. I do not think that I can forecast the coming 10 years in, in, in political events. What I can tell you is that if you want to judge the bill by the stated intentions of Republican Party leaders— Paul Ryan has been very clear that he wants to extend the tax cuts and put federal revenue lower than this bill says. And he wants to pay for that with draconian cuts in government support to low-income people and the elderly. So, like, that's what Paul Ryan wants, right, is bigger tax cuts than this bill puts into law and steep, steep cuts in the social safety net that aren't in the bill. Um, Then there's a question of what is in the bill. What is in the bill is tax increases on the middle class. Then there's like a third hypothetical, which is like maybe the cuts Paul Ryan wants won't happen and also the tax increase. Like that could happen, right? Like anything is up for grabs in future electoral outcomes. But I think two things that journalists can solidly characterize are what does the legislation say? And the legislation says that the middle class tax breaks will expire and 53% of people will pay higher taxes. And you can characterize what are the stated governing intentions of the Republican Party. And those intentions are steeper, bigger tax cuts paid for by gigantic cutbacks to Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, food stamps, et cetera, et cetera. Then there's like politics. Like what will happen in 2027 will be driven by who wins the 2020 and 2018 elections. And so like, good for you. And the 2022 and 2024 and 2026. But there's also, there's like a reflexivity problem in sort of the Republican line, which is they're like, people are whining that the public has been misled to believe that they will be paying higher taxes. And that's why the bill is unpopular. But the reason that supposedly these tax hikes won't occur is that they are so unpopular. 
you know, so like I, I agree with the analysis that the unpopular tax hikes that are in this legislation probably won't come to pass because they are so unpopular. But like, also, that's why the bill is unpopular. Like, the bill says that these taxes should go up. And it is true that Republicans would be well advised to reverse course and change the bill. But like, they could change the bill tomorrow. Well, actually, they can't change it tomorrow. But if they wanted people to not (laughs) criticize them, for having an unpopular bill, they should have written a different bill that had different, more popular provisions. So I have a couple of thoughts on this. One, on the role of journalists here, which you touched on. I do not like the tendency in political journalism to get into a knowing, like what I call like everybody knows journalism, right. where it's like, well, the bill says this, the politician is saying that, but everybody knows that they're lying or everybody knows that something else will happen later because like we are smart political prognosticators and, you know, have the weight of evidence behind us. I mean, and going, you know, it happens in all kinds of ways, right? Like I was part of the everybody knows Donald Trump can't win a Republican primary. Right. Weird shit happens in American politics. Like everybody knows a socialist was not going to almost win the Democratic primary, but he did. In that world, I wouldn't be so sure you can't raise taxes on people uh, for one thing. So I also think that the everybody knows is a way of excusing really terrible political misbehavior. Uh, One thing that often gets built into this jaded baseline is like politicians are scum and like everything they're doing is a lie. And like we're smart and like onto the jig and like all those voters are not. But so we're like not going to spend too much time reminding the voters of like the incredible bullshit being like pulled on them because like we're smart and make us look unsavvy to like take everybody at their word and pretend like this whole game is on the level, right? right? We want to show that we are savvy players, not like actually explain to people what is happening in the game. And so one, I really don't like that. I think that's bad. I think it is like, uh, I think it is not what we should be doing in our jobs. Um, Number two, I want to talk a little bit about this uh, forecasting question because it reminds me of something that happened during Obamacare, but happened in literally the reverse way with the reverse valence. So one thing that is built, and actually a number of things that are built into Obamacare are a ton of different forms of triggers of things that are meant to happen later on that would be hard to keep from happening. But if the bill doesn't save enough money, or even if it does save enough money, are going to like come into play to like in an unpopular way to, to make like so this is like more Cadillac tax, so the Cadillac tax, which was designed for 2018, the Independent Payment Advisory Board, IPAB, which was like a Medicare board to cut spending, which would happen, uh, I forgot the trigger year, but it would happen if Medicare growth was, I believe it was over GDP plus 0.5%, but something like that. There were a bunch of these. And so one thing Republicans said during this was, oh no, Like, this bill is way less fiscally responsible than people say it is because all these things that are written into law won't happen. And the Democrats said, no, 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 they will happen, like, or we'll have to replace them with something else. But, but, you know, they're written into law. They're going to be hard to change. Like, if they're they're taken out of law, somebody will have to act to do that. And by the way, I think there was legitimacy. I mean, later on, there was, for Bernie Sanders, I think ultimately with Hillary Clinton too, a backlash against the Cadillac tax. It's not clear where it would have gone if they had won power, but but there was something there. But so, you know, a lot of things in the bill that in the way they were built, they were meant to make it more responsible. And the idea was like Democrats were going to defend those things. And it was actually Republicans who ultimately began trying to unwind a lot of them, like the Independent Payment Advisory Board, which Republicans have decided they hate. Uh, You're having a similar thing happen here, but with the reverse thing. Instead of the party passing this bill with these sort of responsibility triggers in it um, and saying like, 
yeah, look, I know this may look a little bit weird to you, but like we intend for this bill to not cost more than $1.5 trillion on the deficit, on the debt. So like that's how it's going to be. They're saying, no, we're going to do everything we can down the road to make sure these triggers we have put into the bill ourselves to follow the rules we have set for fiscal responsibility do not happen. It is just like a crazy making thing. Like why they didn't just give themselves more room on the debt or why they didn't just like repeal the whole fucking reconciliation rules altogether. I don't really know. But but the whole thing is just it's just like wild as like a way of just thinking about and explaining your role in American governments governance. So I, it's really bad. I, I just I think that it is almost very hard to appreciate on both a process and and politics and policy level, just like how badly designed and sort of framed and explained this bill has been, how much lying there has been on it. You had a nice thing in your post today about, you know, Paul Ryan sending out these tweets that have like all these things the bill does and none of them are the main thing the bill does. He has the five policy highlights of the bill and he doesn't mention the corporate tax cut. Right. And one of his five policy highlights is that it doesn't repeal the mortgage tax deduction. I mean, which is true. It doesn't. <laughs> but like, that's a weird policy highlight, right? Like it also, like, it doesn't do anything about the endangered species status of tigers. But you know, so like this all connects back. I want to go back to the, the pin I put in Bob Corker. Ah, Bob. So here we have this bill. Bob Corker said he would not vote for this bill if it added a dime to the deficit. A dime. One dime. So it adds many dimes. I'm Several. not literally sure how many dimes are in a trillion dollars, but many. And not only that, but the way the bill it's is- 10 trillion dimes. Well, fuck you, Matt. Think about it. Pedant. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, <laughs> so the bill is also designed at a certain point in the future to become worse than that, to add some unclear amount more onto the debt. Yeah. And Corker has changed his vote yeah. to before the bill. When he changed his vote to before the bill, one of the things that got discovered was it's a little bit unclear if it got added to the bill or it had been in the bill and nobody had noticed it. But the pass-through provision was structured so that if you were like a real estate magnet and you had no employees, you could structure yourself pretty easily as a pass-through and get a massive tax cut. So now it looked like the bill had been changed to make Bob Corker personally richer and he had changed his vote. Corker said no, he changed his vote for unclear reasons on a bill that he opposed that did not change it in any way to become less like a bill that he would oppose, but he had not personally read this provision or knew anything about it. Basically, all of the Republicans had said they didn't understand this provision on this bill. They were all already signed on to vote for. Like, the whole thing has been such a wild exercise in bad faith that it, it is like, it's like hard to like Senator step Hatch back said and it look was at the disgusting to suggest that this is why Corker had changed his vote since everybody knew Corker hadn't read this provision at all, <laughs> which is like, it's a- Do you remember read the bill after Obamacare? Yeah. Like how big of a deal that was in Republican circles? Like, they put out laws. They like put out like- Things were in order to pass a bill would have to be around and everybody would have to prove they read it or something. It just, it's, a, it's a fascinating, I, it's fine with me if members of Congress don't want to read the bills. Um, but to use, I haven't even read the bill as a defense for voting for a bill that has bad provisions seems odd. Bob Corker I mean, will have to pass the bill to find out what's in it. Just pragmatically speaking, if one were to 
want to read every bill that one votes on. The reason to do that would be so that you're not blindsided by criticisms, like how come you voted for a bill that gave yourself a giant tax cut personally? You can't turn around and say, well, I didn't even read it. Um, it turns out, in perhaps defense of Bob Corker, that there's actually like a lot of senators who benefit personally from this <laughs> bill, because it's a weird thing, right? So a lot of senators are rich. Um, and you can't really, like, operate a business while being a senator. So a good thing to do if you're, like, a rich senator who needs to park his wealth in some kind of potentially shady uh, situation is this kind of passive real estate trust. Uh, and there's tons of examples, actually, of se senators' real estate investments do curiously well uh, over the years in, in financial terms, and there's always a lot of good questions to ask about how exactly they arrange that. And it's definitely a the real scandal is what's legal kind of situation in a lot of ways. But suffice it to say that multi-million dollar real estate holdings that don't have employees is a common business structure among Senate Republicans. So, and also among the President of the United States and his son-in-law. So it's not clear that there was like any one guy who was like, oh, I want to give myself a million dollar tax cut here. So much as like, a confluence of interests between a, a lot of people wanted to make sure that a particular kind of business that benefits them all uh, would get a tax cut here, even though it, um, you obviously can't boost hiring by giving a tax cut to a class of businesses that's only eligible for it if they don't have employees. Uh, so I don't, I, I don't know exactly what to say about that. But I, I think as long as we're talking about the sort of small scale irresponsibilities here, it, it's worth pivoting to the sort of the big question of, yep. of understanding. Because one thing that's been notable to me about reaction to this bill is a lot of sort of Obama-era people who are now active on Twitter are very, like, mad online in the in the capital letters sense about the deficit impact of the legislation. But in a, in a way that strikes me as curious, they're not saying the deficit impact of this bill will have a catastrophic impact on America. Like, it would be interesting to me to see Obama people being like, adding this $2 trillion to the debt is going to cause a financial panic. Like, the kind of stuff Republicans said about them. Yeah, we're going to become Greece. Instead, they're going in the, like, triple irony backflip way, where it's like, next time Democrats govern, we're just not going to pay for anything. And that'll show the Republicans. And the question is like, well... If that's a good idea, I mean, they, they should definitely, separate from the question of should you pay for programs or not, if you shouldn't pay for programs, next time Democrats run Congress, they shouldn't pay for programs. And if you should pay for programs, next time Democrats run Congress, they should pay for the programs. Like, past bad behavior by Republicans, I, I don't see how well, it can possibly have anything to do well, with it. Well, let's zoom out then to actually, so we're not caught right. in the triple backflip version of this either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, Admitting it's always time for some game theory, let's right. like put the game theory to the side. Sure. Should programs be paid for? Like, do sometimes. deficits matter? I, I think they sometimes matter, and you sometimes should pay for things. So I want to I want to back this out, a but little normally bit. not. So I one of the theories here is that, and certainly the, the dominant theory in the late aughts and sort of early teens. Like, what are we yeah. calling this period? Um, was that, that what Republicans said, era. the Obama era, what the Republicans said was that we were headed for a, a fiscal crisis, a debt crisis, like what right. we're seeing in Greece. Um, they said this a lot. This was like the main thing that Paul Ryan like rose to Republican prominence saying. It was like all of them, like it was constant debt crises. And, you know, there was a pushback from 
a couple different directions. One direction of pushback was like what I might call the like the fiscal hawk pushback, which is where I'd put the Obama administration, yes. which is they said, yes, we do need to worry about debt and deficits. We need long-term fiscal consolidation, right? Long-term, you know, bringing down our, our debt. But right now we're in a recession, like we need to spend. So it's really a question of sequencing. Right. And like the debate they were having with the Republicans was really about sequencing. Then you had And also a, about balance. And also about balance. And then there was a, a another group that said, no, like this is ridiculous. Like America is not going to have a, a fiscal crisis. Like you can make arguments back and forth about debt and deficits, but we just can't have that. I, I had um, on, on my uh, interview podcast, Yes, Recline Show, I had Paul Krugman on last week, and I had asked him about this. It's very hard. It's, you, you try and tell a coherent story about how that this alleged debt crisis can even happen. I've been through this. I've given presentations at the IMF uh, where I say, uh, look, I believe for a country that looks like the United States, a debt crisis is fundamentally not possible. And people will say, well, I can't quite fault your logic here, but I don't believe it. So it it really is it really is more about a gut feeling than it is about any kind of theory. And, and so that's the question I want to ask you, like to start, Matt. Like, do do you agree with Krugman? Can America have a debt crisis? I think it pretty clearly can't. And I mean, there was a funny thing. I was speaking to somebody I know who does does IMF country reports, and she's she's never worked on the United States, but she heard that interview and she she wanted to complain to me, and she was like, "Yeah, I mean, of course, Paul's right. Like everybody knows that." Like. <laughs> And I, I think you can really see. So this. her upset was she felt like the IMF was getting a bad rap. Yeah, in this. was getting was Not getting that there could be a debt crisis. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I think if you look at Japan, uh, you see this really, really clearly. Uh, the, the Japanese debt to GDP ratio is like catastrophically higher than America's. And every once in a while, there's like a there's like a, a joke in finance circles, right? And it's called the widowmaker trade. And it's when some rich American looks at Japan's debt situation and they're like, this is unsustainable. And they make some giant leveraged bet on like Japan's going to default or there's going to be something. And you always lose money. People have been losing money on this for decades. And it reflects a fundamental misunderstanding of how a modern economy works. Uh, Japan borrows yen, mostly from Japanese people. And Japan is also the world's only source of yen. And they can create yen instantly in infinite quantities. And so there is no world. And if you if you use the currency names, right, it's like Japan can't run out of yen right it doesn't it doesn't make sense um greece can run out of euros right because greece doesn't make euros uh the united states can't run out of dollars the bahamas which also borrows money in dollars can run out of dollars um and you could ask yourself like well why doesn't the bahamas just print up some money uh, and the answer is nobody wants that money it's like shitty bahamian money um they even have a local currency there but it's it's literally it's like disney dollars like tourists come in and like as a sucker you get some local money that you know people will take but you can't like buy imported goods. Uh, but U.S. dollars are like, that's a good thing to have. Pe- people really want them. Uh, we have a mighty army. We have an IRS. And you can imagine different things happening in which the dollar becomes less valuable. And currency, I mean, exchange rates go up and down all the time, right? Uh, the, the U.S. dollar uh, surged during the financial crisis, and then it tended to float downwards during during Obama's time. So that's not 
it's not a made-up worry to say, if we do this, the dollar will decline on international exchange rate markets. But then you have to ask yourself, like, what exactly is the worry there? Like, what's the problem with that? And it could be bad, right? I mean, I, I think with anything in life, you don't want to push it too far. And to say that, like, I don't know, like eating a sandwich won't kill you isn't to say that, like, you should go on an all-sandwich diet and eat 10 sandwiches a day and, and blah, 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 blah. But, like, would it be bad if the value of the dollar went down slowly but surely Well, I don't think years? that's what people think will happen, right? right? I think there's an intuition that if you go into the, well, people want more of our dollars because we have so many creditors. Yeah. And we have dollars and we could just print them by like pressing a button on a computer or we don't even need to print them. We just move them around in, in digital currency form. Uh, there'll be inflation and maybe there'll be hyperinflation and maybe there's hyperinflation. There'll be World War III. You know, like, yeah, yeah. You spin off into that. So, so why then is inflation not the. Well, you know, I mean, inflation could be a concern. I mean, at the moment, inflation has been running below 2% for a long time. Uh, if we had more inflation, it would be at 2%, which would be the target. Uh, if we badly overshot, inflation would go up to 4%, which is where it was when Ronald Reagan was president. Um, if for some reason we reached 4% and then just like kept going, uh, then like it, it might get really high, like 10%, like it was in the 70s, uh, which I, that was legitimately bad. People were really upset by it. American, like it's not like American society collapsed. You know, there wasn't like... Uh, I don't know, like Mad Max type scenario. Uh, what happened was was they needed tighter monetary policy. It, it was a bad thing, but that's just to say, A, it's survivable. And B, there's like a lot of roadmaps on the way, you know, and this view that we could somehow accidentally go from 1.8% to like, Zimbabwe, that that's the crisis idea, right? That there might be some kind of sudden stop. So, so then let's, and the, I just, I just want to say that yeah. this is what I think Krugman was saying and what he's right about is that you have to try to show people a model in which not like if the trend continues forever, the inflation problem slowly but steadily gets worse and worse, but a scenario in which out of the blue – there's just like a crisis from nowhere that like right now inflation's low, but suddenly next week it's catastrophically high. And I don't think you can draw up any scenario in which that happens. All right. So no debt crisis. But, yeah. but let's talk more about these sort of slow, yeah. you know, tipping into a position we don't want to be in. Yeah. Because here's what I think people mean conceptually when they talk about the idea of fiscal responsibility. Yes, of course. Any given Congress, any given year, any given presidential administration, it's probably not going to spend so much or do anything so crazy that, like, future Americans wouldn't be able to pay it down. That said, if you do think it might be a, a case where continuously not paying for things means somebody in the future has to pay it down, well, that's a shitty thing to do to like future Americans, right? A shitty thing to do. It's often spoken about in terms of like our children, mm -hmm. but it may well be us, right? But whatever it is, like maybe it happens during a recession, right? Mm -hmm. Like when you, there's actually a, a new interesting paper uh, that you wrote about in The yeah. Weeds, um, the, the Weeds newsletter, I should say, uh, from Christine and David Romer that showed that societies that go into a recession with a high debt to GDP ratio, and I think it was um, low interest rates. Right end up having much, much worse output 
yes. uh, collapses. Yes. Then societies go in with low uh, debt to GDP and, and, and high interest rates. And the implication of that, I don't really know if what is binding on that is like societal mores, mm-hmm. right? That, that people in a recession, they somehow get like the debt becomes a signal of things being wrong. So then they politically constrain leaders from adding more to the debt, even though that's what they should do. Or there's some kind of economic like play happening there that there is some kind of constraint that, that, that is acting. But to put future societies, um, future governments in the position of having to pay down the mistakes of the past or not having sort of the fiscal firepower they need to, to deal with the recession or whatever it might be, it's just like a shitty thing to do. And, and a responsible society wouldn't do it. It would pay for things as it went along and like keep everything solid and like be risk averse and, you know, um, and, and try to try to hand over the country's fiscal condition as good or even better than it found it. Right. And this is where I think you just need to take a broader view of responsibility, right? A responsible society tries to hand off a better situation to its sons and daughters rather than a worse one. And there's a fiscal aspect to that, but there's so much more to life than that. And if you think about like a a large corporation that's trying to endure over time, right? No business that I'm aware of just like avoids borrowing money at all costs. Um, And and there's, you don't want to draw too tight an analogy between these things, but it depends what you're doing, right? I mean, to borrow money when interest rates are low, to build yourself a gigantic office building, uh, can be a really good thing that really sets your company up in the next generation for more success, right? Because you have an office building. It's good. People can work there. You can sell it. You're not paying rent on all this basis. And that's really convenient. Um, Alternatively, going deeply into debt to buy a factory that just makes garbage that nobody wants to buy, like, that's really bad. Uh, But also, building a shitty factory is a terrible decision, no matter how you pay for it. Because, like, who wants a shitty factory, right? Like, that's not not beneficial. Uh, It would have been terrible in the early 1940s if the Roosevelt administration had decided that we owed it to our children to let Hitler conquer the world rather than burden uh, future generations with a lot of bond holding. Um, as it turns out, paying off war bonds was like not that big of a deal. It, it wasn't really challenging. Um, mobilizing like all of society to defeat the greatest geopolitical evil of all time was really difficult. Um, and it was it was good that they pulled that off. And this is where you get back to... And that's your weeds history lesson for the day. <laughs> no, no, no. But I, I actually think it's it's important no, right, I agree. to think about the mobilizing of society's resources. Because this is why I think oftentimes you do want to pay for things, uh, to, to, to be serious about it, right? If we were to say, okay, we're going to give free medical care to everyone, um, there's a lot of resources involved. Like, real things have to happen for that to take place. And it is probably going to be more effective to make that mobilization happen on both the tax and the spending side, right? It would be like trying to, you know, like steer with only making left turns or, or something like that to just say like, well, we're going to we're gonna just like borrow or print all kinds of money and do whatever. You're going to want some some taxes, but then you got to think about well, what kinds of taxes do you want? And so you might tax wealthy people to say society is going to have less consumption of luxury goods and more provision of medical care, uh, 
Or you might tax um, things that are unhealthy, right? You might tax soda and junk food and things like that. And you're going to say society is going to have less consumption of unhealthy foods and more provision of medical care. You might say both of those things. Uh, You might say there's going to be some broad-based taxes that like everybody is going to make do with slightly fewer fancy gizmos, but more security uh, that their basic healthcare needs will be taken care of. And like those are the social choices that you're making. And you're trying to say like, what are we... What do we want to do here, right? And what Republicans are saying, either under the scenario where you raise middle class taxes or under the scenario where you just borrow money, is that they they want to make America much friendlier to people who own profitable businesses, right? They think a, like a big problem in American society is that if you invested money in Facebook— um, and Facebook is now really, really profitable, that too much of that profit is going into the government's coffers rather than your pockets. And like, if only there was some way to make it the case that having invested in Facebook had paid off for you, uh, we could have uh, glorious uh, wonders. I don't believe that. To me, that doesn't make any kind of sense, right? But the problem there is that it's like building a garbage factory. It's not that there's debt, quote-unquote. And if Democrats are thinking about their plans, you know, it's like, they should think about, are they doing something worthwhile? Like, suppose we had abundant clean electricity from some giant solar panel scheme, and we solved the storage problem and the grid problem and, like, all the million other problems. Um, That would be really good, right? Even if if our grandchildren had to, like, pay back some old bonds, um, having completely conquered energy scarcity and pollution would be a big favor to our children or grandchildren. And I think, like, they would live with it, just like we're okay with the World War II debt. Um, If we spent a ton of money on something useless— They'd be pissed off. Uh, like a pass-through tax cut. Right. But they'd be pissed off no matter how you financed it, right? Like, there's no good way to finance a bad idea. And there's no bad way to finance an amazing idea. This is where I do think the debt game theory does come back into play a little bit. One of the odd things about this period is that all the players involved do believe that Debt and deficits are a real challenge for America. They believe interest rates will hike at some point in the future. They believe if the government prints money to pay down its debt, that there will be some kind of inflation problem. There are all kinds of hypothesized ills, but they do believe in them. Um, I I take them at their word. And we are definitely entering a place, Republicans are very much kicking off, uh, where just as a matter of of like debt game theory, like it does make sense for Democrats to come in and all not, it's not really as a matter of spite. It's as a matter of saying, we're not gonna. Um, yeah, it's a tit for tat to not, not be to, suckers. Not just to not be suckers, but it's like a kind of like a, like a, like a consequences issue, uh-huh. right? Like they do not want to have their governance forever hampered by paying down Republican debt. Right. And so it's like a game of chicken a little bit, right. right? Like, okay, if Republicans are so afraid of debt, like at some point they're going to have to just fucking figure it out and pay for it because Democrats don't want to act under constantly having to deal with, well, the Bush tax cuts created a bunch of debt. And so like now we have to figure that out and do unpopular tax increases and spending cuts. And now the Trump tax cuts created a bunch of debt. And like on and on and on down the road it goes. So Democrats, like I think in a way that is politically rational, want to teach Republicans a lesson. Um but both Democrats and Republicans, as far as I can tell, 
believe in a much more severe form of like debt backlash and debt and debt consequences. And so it's a pretty irrational collective way for everyone to be governing. Um, and it's particularly so for Republicans who, you know, it would have been interesting, I think, if they had tried to pair their massive tax cuts with gigantic spending cuts, but they didn't. There's a reason they didn't do that. Like, they could have built the whole thing to, to work right. that way. They did not want that fight. Um, whatever they're saying now, I still think they don't want that fight. And, you know, we're just going to we're, we're gonna see how it plays out. Um, the thing that is tricky here, that, that is hard to forecast, is one thing we are learning is that Democrats are just much more, like, personally vulnerable to critiques that they're doing governing badly, that they're doing governing irresponsibly than Republicans are. So like you go back to 2010, 2011, there's this, you know, debt craze and people are freaking out and like people on the Sunday shows are talking about it. And what happens is not that Democrats clearly like lose elections based on debt. If anything, they probably would have done better in 2010 if they had like not paid for Obamacare by cutting Medicare spending. Because right. like that was the most popular Republican attack ad, not like some ad about the debt. But Democrats felt a lot of constraint from that. And Republicans clearly do not feel a lot of constraint on this. Like they they do not feel like even though people are complaining about the debt and they're being called hypocrites and like their words are being thrown back at them, they don't care. They're right. they're like the honey badgers of politics. Like they do not give a fuck about any of this. And that is proving in a way to be an advantage. Um, one interesting question is like, do Democrats take the lesson of this, that this kind of sanction, this kind of pressure doesn't matter so long as you don't admit it matters or don't believe it matters? Or is there something structural within the Democratic coalition where they just care more, they do not want to be criticized by economists who are their friends? And so there's just a, a kind of a structurally different approach to governing that happens within the two parties in a sustained way. And I don't know the answer to that. Speaking of structure... Speaking of sustained ways. The structure of the frontier. Um, so this is an interesting, a uh, really interesting paper that Samuel Batsy, uh, Missy, I have no idea how to say that. Samuel Batsy, Martin Fishbein, and Missy Gibrisalasi, I really apologize if I butchered that. Uh, it's, a, it's a difficult name. Uh, they, they have an interesting paper looking at uh, sort of the long legacy of the frontier in, in the United States. Uh, the Census Bureau used to have this concept of a frontier county that was like a place that not a lot of people lived in. And so they they look at which counties um, like stayed in the frontier for an unusually long period of time. And then they assess how those counties are different from other other places in, in the United States. And they show that there's a there's a lot of sort of idiosyncratic attributes. They continue to have unusually male-skewing uh, sex ratios. They have more people giving unusual names to their kids. Like, there's less conformist mentality. And they have um, basically right-wing political viewpoints. Uh, so they characterize this as rugged individualism, which I am told by sort of historian Twitter that, look, this is an economics paper. Uh, a, a lot of historians seem to really object to their use of the rugged individualism concept. I think the statistical work can survive just sort of bracketing that. Um, they show that people who live in former frontier counties have much more skepticism of a broad set of government regulations and a redistributive scheme. And they vote for Republicans in higher numbers. They vote for Republicans in part as a consequence of that. And Well, who knows? 
<laughs> yes. Um, and it, you know, it accounts for a, an interesting sort of thing. If you, if you look at like old electoral maps, uh, you can see that in a lot of ways, the parties seem to have switched their geography, right? The Democrats used to be the party of the South, the Republicans used to be the party of New England. But the like corridor of like nobody lives here states actually didn't realign and like was Republican in both sets of, of dynamics. And I think you can think of this thesis as explaining that, right? That a lot of American politics has pivoted around race, but that there's like another thing going on in the ex-frontier zone that is not about race, but is about frontierism. So one of the things that I find interesting in, in this paper, in papers like this, in analyses like this, is, as you say, the, what the authors find is a set of values, Right there, there's more skepticism in certain kinds of redistribution, more what you would consider like traditionally individualistic answers to survey questions, um, and also more Republican support. Now, over time, the two parties have really changed super dramatically across a pretty wide range of issues. Um, you know, the Democratic Party has traditionally been somewhat more redistributionist, for sure. But there's a lot of things that, depending on how you code ideas of individualism, the parties can flip back and forth. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of things that, depending on um, how you code skepticism of government, particularly when you get into questions of national defense, of civil liberties, where the parties flip back and forth. And I'm always interested by the ways in which these values create sustained allegiance to one party or the other even as the party's allegiance to these values is much more contingent. Mm -hmm. And and that's why I sort of joked earlier when it's like, who knows, is it they've become Republicans or they've become like, right. again, bracketed, rugged, rugged individualists because like one possible mediating answer here is that like motivated reasoning supplies like the, the middle, right? That people, they like a party, they feel party represents values. And so when the party begins to stray from that, they sort of like figure out a way to retell the story. Mm -hmm. If it's going the other way, it's a little bit harder to understand. Right. But but it, that's a way in which I find papers like this confusing because I don't really look at the Republican Party in a lot of ways and see, uh, pretty over time, so much more individualism in it. I see a lot of stuff going on, but it's just complicated. The parties are very complicated. Right. You could completely imagine, for instance, how questions of reproductive rights could have been coded totally differently in American mm -hmm, life, mm -hmm. right? Like, the government should not be intruding on what I do with my own fucking body is a perfectly good government skeptical answer. Right. Well, and, and also, I'm like, five factors psychology, yes. right? Like, Democrats score as the the open to experiences party, uh, whereas Republicans are responding to hierarchy, which is like the opposite yep. of this individualism claim. I, I think one interesting thing is that, actually, if you think about what the historians are arguing about, right, would you characterize moving to a sparsely populated portion of the plains to work alongside fellow white people and the U.S. Army to commit genocide against the native population and steal their land? Would you characterize that process as rugged individualists making it on their own? Or would you characterize it as genocide and collective expropriation? Because I think you would see a pretty sharp partisan divide on that 
question, right? Where like much more the Republican thing would be to continue to romanticize the frontier and cowboy settlement, whereas it's Democrats who would get into like all kinds of woke internecine battles about like whether we can really celebrate the, the frontier and the settlement at all. And that that to me seems like much more compelling in terms of like how at least today people will be anchored into different parties, right? That like Republicans are much more likely to put forward a heroic vision of like American history in general and this particular aspect of American history in particular, whereas Democrats are the party that's like wants to complicate everything and like make everyone feel bad about stuff. I totally agree. This is that's a very today thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Like you go back and Democrats have some real anti-Native American oh, no, no, I, politicians I, 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 in the ranks. A hundred percent. No, no, no. I mean, I just, I just think that if you want to explain, you know, lots of people, lots of groups, lots of geography has switched partisan allegiances. And if you wanted me to just like hypothesize yep. a connection between like frontier mentality and the Republican Party, I, I would just posit a much more direct one than one that's mediated by individualism, that it's like one that's mediated by like who who is going to say that these frontier right. places are part of a heroic yeah, tri- story. tribe and status stories. Yeah, 100%. The other thing that I just think is interesting, look, there's a lot of fascinating work that shows in different ways and in ways that are clearly pretty complicated. There is heritability of political opinions. There is long-term heritability of like political tribal allegiances. So there are a bunch of interesting books. Um, Albion Seed is one of them. American Nations is another of them that are, are sort of looking at ways in which America was settled by different groups, had a lot of different groups in it, and that those sort of initial differences in even within people who we just sort of like roll over as Americans mm-hmm. have a huge effect on, on our politics today, right? You've got like the sort of fighting Scots-Irish and, you know, you've got the, the descendants of the Quakers. And these things really do seem to have pretty interesting long-term effects. And I, as much as I think it's an interesting question of how those long-term effects are mediated and like how they sustain party politics, which are, are much more volatile than the, than the issues themselves. I mean, even the Democratic Party is like the Republican Party is initially like an anti-slavery party and is now like a party of white nationalism. And yet there's like a consistent set of allegiances there in a way that is is fascinating. Democrats go from being very racist to being more or less to being the more woke party. And, and again, a pretty consistent set of allegiances. So like something fascinating is happening in the psychological allegiance building there. But even so, uh, this heritability is interesting, and it does clearly help explain some things that are happening in American life and things that we don't know always how to talk to or talk about because, like, we don't know how to track, we don't know how to divide the the the, the country this way. Um, but yeah, like our, our past is our present. Yeah, I mean, although I will always caution about these things, a book I read recently was William Labov's Dialect Diversity in America, The Politics of Language Change, which attempts some of this kind of analysis. And the big point that he makes is that there's this like strong correlation between certain Great Lakes area dialects and a particular set of non-college educated white people who were much more democratic leaning in their voting allegiances than other non-college educated white people. And then the book engages in some like big spinning out of the like profound, you know, centuries long roots. And it has to do with 
different kinds of barn design and settlement trajectories. And great book. Like, it, it was amazing. I, I recommended it to other people. Uh, and then we know what happened in 2016 is that exactly this group of people who used to be relatively more Democratic-leaning than other sort of broadly similar white people uh, voted for Donald Trump. And that was, like, the whole pivot of the 2016 election. And... I mean, maybe there's some fascinating uh, theory about the Amish barns and and how that played into that. Uh, But it also just shows that it's like, there's lots of different kinds of people in America, and there's only two political parties. So, like, ultimately, a lot of this politics and partisan tribalism winds up being, like, like more reductive and like dumber than the like rich nuanced texture of American life. Um, and yet it really matters, right? I mean, like it's all fine to say, like this is so much more complicated than just two parties, but like actually there's only two parties and it makes a big difference who's who's in the majority. And it's, a, I mean, I don't know, you can talk about electoral systems, um, but I, I just, on some level, I think one can overthink. I don't want to say overthink. We should think hard about what's going on in American society. But American politics is like actually kind of crude and simplistic. That's a good weeds, I think. Absolutely. <laughs> American politics, crude and simplistic. Uh, thank you as always to our engineer, Peter Leonard, and producer, Peter Leonard. Um, Peter Leonard does lots of stuff on the show. Uh, he's great. Uh, and we'll be back next week. Boom. Boom.